It's good to be with you. Uh, thankful for the opportunity to be up here over the summer as Kids for Truth is on a little bit of a break, summer break. Um, thankful for the opportunity to preach this summer. As Pastor mentioned um, the little bit of a change. I think uh, the plan is for me to at least preach over the summer and the sum- Sunday evenings. Lord willing, um, I'd like to preach through the letter of First Thessalonians this summer. You can turn to First Thessalonians with me. Um, there are five chapters. Maybe if you look at the calendar like I've had, you or I have. Maybe you wonder how that will work. But uh, sometimes we'll, Lord willing, take some bigger chunks. Uh, sometimes just a few verses at a time. But I'd like to try to take the whole letter in just a few months so we can grasp uh, the message of the whole letter more quickly, a little more easily, uh, in a shorter amount of time. Again, Lord willing. Uh, I would say don't quote me on that. Don't hold me to that. But. This letter, First Thessalonians, we'll read chapter 1 in a moment, uh, is one of the earliest letters written in the, Old, in the New Testament, rather, perhaps the earliest Uh, probably in the early 50s A.D., so if you think of uh, history at that time, Jesus lived around late 20s, early 30s A.D., so this is some 20 years after Jesus left the earth, after he had just walked the earth, um, lived and died and risen again. Uh, This is not many years after Pentecost and the inauguration of the church and the spreading of the gospel across um, the Mediterranean and into Europe. Uh, this Paul writes this on his second missionary journey. So if you read the book of Acts, you may even have headings in your Bible of about three missionary journeys. The first one he takes with Barnabas, uh, starting in chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. That's when, uh, maybe you remember, John Mark departs from them, and that becomes a source of contention later between them. Uh, in Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council, when men are the, the church in Jerusalem is trying to make a decision about this uh, teaching that's being spread, and Paul is there, and the apostles, the other apostles are there. And then at the end of chapter 15 is the split between Paul and Barnabas, and Paul, you may remember, takes Silas with him, or if you look here in First Thessalonians, it appears he was also known as Silvanus. Um, and one of the first places he goes to is Derby and Lystra in chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, where he meets Timothy, who we recently heard about um, on Mother's Day, his pastor was preaching. And the three of them come to Philippi, where he meets Lydia, the seller of purple. They're persecuted after Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. There's a mob in Philippi. They're beaten. They're thrown in prison, even though they're Roman citizens. The stocks, Paul is... Paul and Silas are singing in prison, and the prison opens up with an earthquake, and the jailer is converted with his house. Um, Then they're finally released, and where they go from Philippi is to the city of Thessalonica. So that's kind of getting our bearings in the book of Acts. Paul comes to Thessalonica fresh off being beaten and imprisoned. And if you read Acts 17, we won't take the time, but... He comes, and apparently this is a city big enough with enough Jews to support a synagogue. He preaches Christ there in Thessalonica, but there are, again, jealous Jews, is what Luke writes in Acts 17. They are jealous. They form a mob. 
They attack the house of apparently where Paul was staying, Jason. They're looking for Paul. They bring Jason out into the streets before their own city officials. They end up securing this, this pledge from Jason. And the accusation that they give, I'll read these verses, Acts 17, verse 6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And Luke records that they even succeed in stirring up the city authorities with this accusation. So Paul and Barnabas, uh, excuse me, Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica for Berea, uh, which is significant for our church. They leave by night, they preach there. And there the Jews are said to be more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they search the scriptures. But you may remember the Jews from Thessalonica chase them over to Berea, and they run them out of town there. They start up a a, a riot. And that's when Paul and Timothy and Silas leave Berea. Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul leaves Berea, goes to Athens. Actually, Timothy and Silas stay there, and they eventually reunite back in Corinth. So this is kind of a brief overview of some of the history of Acts and the history of when Paul would have written this letter. He probably wrote it from Corinth just a few stops later. But this, I think, is enough to give us a sense of what kind of situation Paul left this fledgling church in. What happened in Thessalonica? There was an angry mob, angry enough to chase these missionaries to another city and throw them out. There's suspicion on the part of political leaders in the city. The Jews were attacking Paul, but what did they hate? They really hated the word. They were jealous. Their hearts were hard. They were suspicious of the change that the gospel was bringing all over the world. They were falsely accusing Christians of sedition and civil disobedience. They were secluding them. They were, in the case of Jason, perhaps others, putting financial pressure on them to not allow more preachers of the message of the gospel, and so on. And now there's this church in Thessalonica with lots of angry, jealous, suspicious Jews and Romans watching them and ostracizing them. And this is why Paul writes this letter. He's concerned for them. He writes it from Corinth. He was chased out. And there are a number of concerns. If you read the letter, you you can pick up on on a few of those. He's writing perhaps just a few weeks later, concerned about the faith of those he left behind. He never got to say a proper goodbye, you could say. They were were thrown into the fire of persecution before he was done preparing them for it. He had taught them urgently while he was there, but he didn't want them, want this rising pressure that they're now facing to, to stamp out their zeal for the Lord. So what is a man to say in that situation? What what is the pastor's heart? What is he going to share in a letter? It's in this setting, and for this reason, uh, I've kind of summarized the letter this way, that faith faith that perseveres under rising pressure, that's the title I've given to this series. Paul is writing about faith that perseveres under rising pressure. The pressure is rising in Thessalonica. Maybe there's not active, ongoing riots against these new converts, but the pressure is rising. They've seen it in a very public way towards Paul, and they sent a very loud message. They wanted to beat him to death. It was only because they couldn't find him that they didn't. 
And the theme, we could say, that Paul drives at in this letter is that God preserves those he calls by sanctification. How is your faith going to stay stable under this rising pressure? How will God keep you through it? How will he bring you through this sinful world all the way to glory? He will preserve you by sanctifying you. It's by sanctification that God preserves those that he calls. And just very briefly, I'd invite you to look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 3. We'll, we'll read chapter 1 in a moment. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. He closes the first part of his letter, and I think this is a good summary. One of the, the key paragraphs in the letter that really sets our mind on this. Notice how much he identifies God as theirs and ours. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. That's spiritual growth. And for all people, just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. If you turn over to first, uh, chap- chapter 5, verse 23, I think he puts it most succinctly here. You could take this as the key verses for the whole book. His closing benediction, what does he say? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God called them at salvation. He called them into the light. He rescued them. He made them his children, opened their eyes, gave them faith. And he will preserve them complete because he's faithful. He will do it. He will preserve them. How? Verse 23. Now may the God God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. God preserves those he calls. How? By sanctification. He sanctifies them. So that's as brief of an introduction to the series, I think, as we can get. But down to this first chapter. The point of this first chapter is that Paul is describing the foundation of sanctification in which they must continue. If God's going to preserve them by sanctifying them, what does sanctification look like for them already? Paul describes it in this chapter. And then he tells them, shares his encouragement at them so that they would continue. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and see what the Lord has for us tonight. God's word says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, 
but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of, res- of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In this chapter, Paul shares his thankfulness for his memory. You notice in the past tense, he's writing about what he remembers of them, his memory of their true faith in order to encourage them to persevere in it. So Paul is encouraged by them, and he's encouraging them. And it's for that reason I've titled this sermon, The Encouragement of a Growing Church. The Encouragement of a Growing Church. Paul is encouraged by this church that is growing in their faith spiritually, And he wants to encourage them based on that so that they would continue in it. And the principle that Paul is driving at is that that we can take for ourselves is that a church growing in faith is a spiritual encouragement to God's people. It's an encouragement to those who are ministering to them and it's an encouragement to them that they are doing what God is, God is going to preserve them as they pursue that sanctification. A church that is growing in faith is a spiritual encouragement to God's people. And this is evident in three ways in this chapter. Where we're headed is that a a growing church, a church that is growing in faith, is an encouragement to God's people. Number one is it multiplies praise for God. You see that in Paul's mention of thanksgiving to God and mentioning them in his prayers. It encourages God's people as it leads them to praise God. But also, it encourages God's people as it, and because it's being shaped by the word. You see in verse 5, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Verse 6, You became imitators of us. This is the effect of the word. Having received the word in much tribulation. This, This church is being shaped by the word, and it's encouraging to Paul. But then finally, a growing church is an encouragement to God's people because it is, we can say, an exemplary church. You notice how Paul is talking about their testimony, not just to their community, but to other churches. This growing church, and in God's design, in God's wisdom, all churches that are growing in their faith, growing in godliness, God intends them and God uses them as an encouragement to that church, to that pastor, and to all of his people. A growing church encourages God's people. So first, a growing church encourages spiritually God's people as it multiplies praise for God. And you see this evident first in verse 2 as it fills the prayers of the saints with thanksgiving to God. What does Paul say first? We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. This church has become the cause of praise to God from Paul. When a church is growing in godliness, who is it a credit to? Why is this filling the prayers of the saints with praise for God? It's because God deserves credit for their growth in faith. And it ought to make it into the prayer of God's people, this church. Because that's all, 
All of this growth is a testament to God's grace and the power of his spirit among them. And we could take as an illustration even some of the churches that we have prayed for, that God would establish them and that they would grow, not just in numbers, but uh, spiritually, that they would grow as a church in maturity and in uh, conviction about the truth, stability in the truth, commitment to preaching the truth. And God has done that by his grace. Uh, And we've had an opportunity to participate in that. And we ought to praise the Lord for that. I think that's a, a very clear picture of that. A church that's growing in faith multiplies praise for God as God's people recognize God's work and credit him for what he's doing. We have to see it and then give credit to God. In fact, Paul turns next to what God is actually doing in their midst that he's so thankful to God for. And why else does a growing church multiply praise for God? Well, it's bearing the fruit of God's saving grace. In verse 3, what is Paul remembering that he's giving thanks for? Bearing, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. I'm saying that these are the fruits of God's saving grace that Paul sees in this church that he's crediting God with. And I'd like to take a little bit of time here because this is a key uh, collection of fruits for this letter. Paul talks a lot about faith and love and hope. That's why when you come to later in the letter, you have this famous passage of those who died in Christ. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, chapter 4, verse 13, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He's talking about hope. And in much of the rest of the letter, he talks about hope and love and faith. So what is their faith like that Paul notices that really is proof that God is at work among them, God has rescued them. Well, it's a faith with genuine evidence, isn't it? It's faith that works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 4 says, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And of course, maybe your mind first goes towards James chapter 2, where he's talking about you're not saved by faith, but your faith works. Faith without works is dead. And all of the New Testament testifies to this. When God has brought a dead sinner to life, Titus 3 says, that new man lives in holiness and zeal to do the good works of God. Even Ezekiel, the new covenant, through the prophets, when God gives a person a new heart, that heart is inclined to obey the law of God out of love for God. That's one of the blessings of the new covenant. True Christians do good works by faith, not so that God would save them, but because God has saved them. Someone said justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So Paul has in mind this evidence of God's work among them, that their faith works. He has in mind their work of faith, and he's thankful to God for that because God is producing that spiritual fruit in them. But what else does he remember? He remembers the love 
that labors. And this is another fruit of salvation, another evidence of true life. And the distinction here is not on the, this love that labors. It's not so much on the, the acts themselves as in the, the work of faith, what exactly they're doing by faith. But here it's on the effort expended in loving, the, the agony of love, the straining, the selfless, diligent effort and labor to show love toward others. There's sweat in this, in this love, you could say. John writes in 1 John 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Love towards the brothers is an evidence of true love. This isn't just natural family affection, of course something that you would say is normal and that you would expect, maybe the love of a mother toward her children. But love for the family of God in that place that works hard to be able to help those in need, those who are destitute and without provision, or those who have been put under financial pressure for their faith, perhaps even someone like Jason, those who are laboring in love towards their brethren, self-sacrifice to provide for others because of bond of love in Christ. This is another fruit of true faith. But finally, what else does Paul have in mind that he's so grateful to God for? It's hope that endures. Constantly bearing in mind steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a persevering hope, an enduring hope, a a steadfast expectation expectant waiting that continues beyond the point of failure. Courage, you could say, under pressure that's fixed on something that is coming. He's thankful for this. And all of this, it's not just faith with genuine evidence. It's faith in a proper object, in a truly sincere faith. See what he says? steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. He knows that they've put their faith in in the proper object. They're not hoping in something else. They're not believing something else. They believe in the risen Christ. And it's sincere. It's in the presence of our God and Father, the God who searches, who alone searches hearts. Paul knows that their faith is genuine. A church that bears this kind of fruit multiplies praise for God. Why? Because God is the only source of this fruit. This isn't something that comes to natural men. This isn't, you know, in our age we have self-help, right? Self-improvement. You can't self-improve spiritual fruit. God produces this. Real evidence of good deeds, self-sacrificial love, and steady expectation that Christ will return truly From the heart before the all-seeing God, that's the kind of life that only the Holy Spirit can produce in a person. And if you do see that, praise God. Praise God. That ought to be encouraging to you because God is at work. So Paul has said that he and his companions thank God for this church because of what they remember witnessing as far as God's work of grace while they were there. 
But this church is multiplying praise to God from the lips of Paul for another reason, too. Because it's evidence that God is accomplishing his plan. See what Paul says in verse 4. He's thanking God, making mention of them in his prayers, constantly remembering God's works of grace among them, but also he's convinced, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. All of this is evidence to him that God is still accomplishing his plan. He's convinced that these are his spiritual brothers, is what he calls them, knowing, brethren. He's convinced that these are God's children, beloved by God. He's convinced that they're God's elect, his choice of you. He's convinced of this. And in the next sentence, he he gets to why exactly he's convinced of this, what evidence he has to make this claim that God has chosen you. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you. It's the effect that the word has had on them. Paul can't know who God has chosen, but he can look at the evidence of what God is doing in them by the word and say, yes, God is really doing this. God has chosen you. And to encourage them by this sweet truth. But first, we should recognize that this is a reason Paul gives thanks to God. Because he has come to realize that God chose these people from the beginning of the world. And he couldn't know that beforehand, but he can now because of what God is doing. And the point is this. God intends it to encourage our hearts when we come to realize that we have been among true saints of God. Have you ever had this experience? Or maybe you went to another church, maybe you've traveled to another country, and you've been among the people of God, and you were so thrilled. Maybe you didn't even speak their language. Maybe they were from a different part of the country. Maybe you didn't know any of them. How often does that happen in a group of Christians? Pretty rarely. Maybe, maybe you were a total stranger, but you knew that you were among the people of God. God intends for that to encourage you. That they are truly your spiritual brothers and sisters. That they are truly God's children. That they are truly the recipients of God's electing love. That ought to thrill our hearts. Because that is evidence to us. That God is still rescuing rescuing sinners from darkness into light. God is still on his mission to rescue sinners to worship him. And these kinds of growing believers are living proof to us that God is still succeeding in that mission to gather worshipers, to restore them to himself, and to restore Christ's image in them. And when we get a glimpse of this from a body of believers that's growing in grace, whether it be our own church or another church, that should fill us with joy and with confidence, and with hope. It should strengthen our faith, because we know that God's purpose cannot be thwarted, and we see it. God is still on the throne. Growing saints should draw our attention to the God who is accomplishing his will in them and through them. So Paul, like we mentioned, Paul is convinced that God chose them based on evidence, based on what Paul sees God has done and is doing, especially through the word. You'll notice that in the next few verses. It's not especially evident in our English translations, but there's four occurrences of the same word, became. There is some kind of transformation that has happened, that God, 
blessed this, this, these people as he was working by the word. Paul looks at the results after the fact. Even as Paul is sure by the, what he's seen of their faith that God has chosen these saints, so also does he rejoice at what transformation is occurring in their midst by the word of God. And he points their attention to this as well for their own encouragement. If you look in verse 5, for our gospel did not come. There's the first occurrence of it. It's actually become, not that the word became anything. This is a right translation, but it's the same word. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved or we became among you for your sake. There was something that God did through these ministers for the sake of this church. You also, what effect did it have on the believers? Became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what's going on? A growing church encourages God's people because it's being shaped by the word. It's becoming something that the word is molding it into. And how does this happen? Loud and clear from Paul here is that it happens only as God blesses the word. A church grows and is shaped by the word as God first blesses the giving of the word. God also has to bless the receiving of the word, but first, as God blesses the giving of the word. He says, our gospel did not come to you. As also you know what manner of men we proved to be. God blesses the preaching of the word. He sends it, what does Paul say? Not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God did that, not Paul. But God also blessed the ministers of the word, the people who were bringing the message, men of integrity, that matches their message, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So what are we talking about? Well, people say talk is cheap, right? Or put your money where your mouth is. In our day, there's, I'm sure you've noticed, there's an avalanche of information. Some people have called it the information age. There's an abundance of so-called news, which is mostly just gossip often. And we wonder who we can trust, which news source, which politician, which CEO, who can we really listen to, which economist. And in Paul's day, it wasn't altogether different. Obviously, the technology was different. But what was similar was uh, due to the, the Romans' fascination with oratory, with oration, as we'll see more later. Anybody with a formal education who had a hint of charisma or ambition could get themselves a following by advocating for some philosophy or something when they entered a town. And they themselves may or may not live by that philosophy, but they could sure convince people to give them their money for it. They were very persuasive. When Paul says in verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, Look down in chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You may have a marginal note there that, uh, or or actually back in verse 9, that our coming, this is kind of a formal word 
of this philosopher coming into the town. It's a well-publicized event that this person with this philosophy is going to give their speech. And it was kind of, the, kind of a, a public event that people would go to, that an orator, a philosopher, would often try to get a following with. But what Paul's saying is that his good message, his gospel, wasn't just words with no substance to them. Because that's what many of these philosophers became known for. It was almost comical, and it's written about. You can read in some of the contemporary Greek manuscripts that there were many of these people who would come, but they were hypocrites. They would, they would proclaim that you have to live a really austere lifestyle, but then they would get all this money, and when you saw them in private, they were living in luxury and in, in debauchery. It was hollow. Words that were empty. But Paul wasn't without substance. Just as Paul and his companions weren't just professional orators trying to make a buck. This message came not just in cheap words that are worth discarding, but with the blessing of God on the message in their hearts and on the messengers who were delivering it. This gospel came with life-giving power from God. The gospel, Paul writes in Romans, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel came in power. And it came with the Holy Spirit, not in persuasive words of wisdom, he writes in 1 Corinthians, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He was showing to them the power of the Spirit to produce life where there was none. And they witnessed it. They saw it in themselves and in one another. Yes, God is bringing true spiritual life. It came with power and with the Spirit and with complete certainty, full conviction, without any doubt or hesitation. Paul himself had no reservations about this because he had seen the work of the gospel in his own life and in the lives of many others. God had given him a boldness to proclaim it. He was 100% convinced of the truth of it. There were no chinks in his armor as he was preaching the gospel, no flickers of doubt in his mind. He was persuaded, and the Thessalonians sensed that while he was there. And that was because God blessed the giving of the word, the message and the messenger. God does this through preaching. We can't manufacture this. We cannot manufacture this. We must depend on God to bless the preaching of the word. And as he does, the church will be shaped by the true message delivered by faithful messengers. What does God say? As the rain falls from heaven and the snow and doesn't come back without accomplishing its purpose, so will my word accomplish everything for which I sent it. But preaching isn't just a one-way street. It's not just the person speaking. If you've ever had a communication class, this is kind of communication 101. It's one of the few things I remember from uh, freshman speech. It goes both ways. There's someone who's speaking, and there are people who are hearing, listening, responding. And the Bible talks about this, too. And it lays the responsibility on us. We can't only be hearers. We must be doers. We must respond in the right way. And even as God has blessed the delivery of the word to these people in the city of Thessalonica, so also did they need God to bless the receiving of it. And this, too, is how a church is shaped by the word for the encouragement of God's people. You see 
how this appears. What does this look like in verse 6? God blessing the receiving of the word. It's received against human expectations. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What expectations might they have had? Well, they received it and became like the person who ended up being persecuted, right? Paul's preaching the gospel, they're being converted, and then Paul is persecuted for that message. But they were becoming like him. Nobody could have expected that. They received it despite the persecution. Not only were they becoming like the one who was persecuted, but there was spreading Jewish opposition. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. And how did they receive it? Not with suspicion, like these Jews were treating the message, but actually with joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit. God blessed the receiving of the word by opening their hearts. By bringing forth fruit. Man sows and waters, but who gives the increase? God does. But God also blesses the word when it's producing increasing benefits to God's people. By God's gracious work, the Thessalonians received the word. But with what result? Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The result of God's work, having blessed the receiving of the word, was that they became an example to believers in the region. God was blessing the preaching and the receiving of the word, not just for them, but for others, too. There was edification not just for that church, but for other churches. And the loud and clear application of this point that Paul makes is that if a true, growing church is being shaped by the word and God has to bless the message the giving of it, the messenger, the receiving of it, the fruit that comes from it, we must, we must pray for the ministry of the word. Both the preaching of it and the receiving of it. It's important for us as God alone works by his spirit through the word. And it's important for others as that is a source of God-ordained spiritual encouragement for them. We should be praying that God would be glorified through us, especially as we hear and respond to the word. Read, taught, preached. And I would say, if that sounds familiar, that is a request that's in our prayer guide. That God's word would be honored as it spreads among us. We should pray this. We must because God, we, we need God to bless the preaching of the word. So very quickly, for the encouragement of this growing church, Paul kind of picks up on this theme and describes for them what really has been a very marvelous effect that the word is having on them for God's glory, such that they're becoming exemplary for other churches. Uh, that is the final way in this chapter that we see how a growing church encourages God's people. It's, it's as that growing church is exemplary in preaching the gospel and living by faith obediently to the Lord, verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It's echoing out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also 
not just the word, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul doesn't really even need to talk about what happened in Thessalonica because everybody knows about it. It's obvious that they are living by faith. They're preaching the gospel verbally, but also by their lives. It's, it's undeniable what God has done in their midst. And they're exemplary in that way. And Paul addresses here what's being reported about them, I think indicating another way that a, a growing church is exemplary in that it's well-reputed for several things. Their faith toward God was going forth such that Paul had no need to say anything about what? What is he talking about? Well, himself, actually. He doesn't need to commend himself to these other churches because all of the churches that he's going to see the kind of ministry he's had and they see that it's genuine. We have no need to say anything, verse 9, for these other churches themselves report about us, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, that he's not a fraud. He's the real deal with the real message. What kind of reception we had with you or what kind of entrance we had with you and how you turned to God. People are reporting this about them. This is their reputation. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So a growing church is an exemplary church as it preaches the gospel, as it lives by faith, as it has a, a good reputation for commending faithful ministers of the gospel, for true, a, a true life of faith, for expectant watchfulness for their Savior. This church was exemplary for the way that they lived in anticipation of the coming of their conquering King and Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the one that they believed in as God's Son, crucified, risen again for their justification. So just a final word, a few words of application about encouraging the ministers of the Word, because that's what Paul is to them. You see in chapters 2 and 3, Paul's, he really has a pastoral heart toward them. But he is encouraged. What does he start? We give thanks to God always for you. He's thrilled at his memory of them. Of course, he's concerned. Interestingly, he's writing from the perspective of just having heard a report of how they're doing. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, we were comforted about you through your faith. So Paul is writing as though he didn't know this, but he, he is writing from the standpoint of having heard a good report. But he's, he's writing in the past. He's remembering what really happened there, what so thrilled his heart to see. Spiritual growth is a source of encouragement for those ministering to the people of God. Do you want to encourage your pastor? Seek to grow in the Lord. It is a source of encouragement. We're often asked, we often hear in membership interviews and uh, membership class, even as we vote to receive a member into, or someone into membership, about this verse, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And what is the exhortation in that verse? Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It is possible to be a grief to someone who knows what you should be doing and who is responsible to God for how they lead you and you're not doing it. But it's also possible, and even in the design of God, to encourage that same one as you do what the Lord prompts you to do by the word. Praise the Lord for that. But also, just a word of application towards encouragement for all of us in our church, because Paul isn't just encouraged by them. He's telling them this in order to encourage them. That's why I've titled this The Encouragement of a Growing Church because it grows both ways. Encouragement goes both ways. The church encourages and the church can be encouraged. What should we look to for encouragement? Not programs, not novelty, not even necessarily more people, but are we honoring to God by our faith? Do we honor his word such that it shapes us individually and as a whole? And are we examples of the believers? This is what Paul points to, that their faith is real. He's seen it. He knows it. That they really are being shaped by the word, such that they're becoming an example to other churches. That ought to be an encouragement to us. That ought to thrill us if we see any of that. That is what we should look for. That is what we should strive for with the Lord's help. And as these are evident and increasing, by God's grace, this is how we will persevere under rising pressure as God sanctifies us and as we continue in that. Certainly there are other ways that God grows a church, but these are three that Paul points to. As the gospel becomes, in our culture, increasingly uh, discriminating and offensive, because the darkness keeps getting darker and men hate the light, even as we heard this morning. What will keep us stable in our faith is if we're always moving forward in these kinds of things. And for that, we must pray. Because God preserves his people by sanctifying them. We're dependent on him for our faith. And we must depend on him to grow our faith so that we are established in it. For his glory, for our good, and for the encouragement of his people. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the tender love of one who labored so fervently to establish these Christians and then was so suddenly taken from them such that he was unsure. But he had sweet memories of their growth. And Lord, we thank you for any of those signs of spiritual growth that we've seen in our lives. That is a credit to you. Help us to turn to you and praise you for that. Because we know even as we could never have saved ourselves or moved towards you in any way, so also if it weren't for all of the the goodness and grace and the, the equipment for spiritual growth that you give us, we couldn't do that either. But you have given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us many precious promises. You've brought us into relationship with yourself. You've shown us Jesus Christ and he's revealed you to us and we can know you and become like you. And we, we just adore you and praise you for all of this. Help us to take your values for our own and to be encouraged by what is truly valuable to you. 
And we do pray that you would work this way in our midst. Lord, we need you to work among us. We pray that we would honor your word and that it would spread rapidly through us and that we would be sharing it and be full of it ourselves throughout the week and fervent for you in it so that we can, as a church, not just individually, but as a whole, be established for your honor as men also see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven, but for our encouragement as well. Lord, we, we are weak. As Pastor mentioned, you know our frame, and we're thankful. Encourage us from your word tonight, we pray it in Christ's name.